Hey everyone, welcome back to On Point. This episode, I sit down with Steve and Clint from Easton. Uh, Steve has a archery competition background. You might know him as Steve uh, Big Cat Anderson, who's world championship archer. He's got plenty of medals under his belt, plenty of wins, and uh, he's, he's definitely a good shooter. And then Clint leads the R&D uh, branch of Easton and uh, just both have really great technical knowledge of arrows and, and arrow building and how an arrow is put together. And with Steve's uh, experience as a shooter, uh, lots of brain to pick here. So I had a great time asking questions I've had on my brain for a while and uh, got some interesting answers. I uh, learned a lot and a lot of things that I'm going to take home and absorb and, and uh, really think about for my arrow setups and, and things that probably uh, aren't in the popular mainstream set of mind that I was uh, really interested in hearing them explain how they get to where they're at and uh, just really, really love their perspective. So if you get a chance, be sure to check them both out. Uh, Steve Anderson, uh, he's got a Facebook page, and Clint, I don't even know if he has an Instagram, but uh, both great guys, and I plan on having them back on the show in the future. So outside of that, if you have a chance and you want to help the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, or you can visit the webpage at www.onpointpodcast.com. Give me your email, which I will eventually use. I'm done even saying a day because I'm so far behind. But I will eventually use it and send you things. So outside of that, guys, appreciate you listening, and I will see you at the end. Bye. So let's get some introductions going on. I'm fired up to have both of you guys on here. Thanks for your time. And um, I'm really looking forward to geeking out, especially on the arrow aspect and, and then get into a little bit of Steve's uh, tuning and stuff. But, yeah, give me a breakdown of, of uh, your guys' bios, and we'll start this thing off. Sounds good. Um, want me to go first, Steve? Go ahead. All right. So I'm Clint Warner. I'm Director of Product Development for Easton. Um, I've been an archer pretty much my whole adult life. I started archery when I was 14, bow hunting. Um, also shot a little bit of Joe Ad as a kid. Um, and worked for Easton for a few years in the 90s, but have been with Easton full-time going on 12 years now. Um, so I've I've run everything here from our tent pole division when I started, moved into all of our archery accessories, so bow cases, quivers, tools, things like that, mm -hmm. designing, developing those. And then in the last um, probably three years, um, started getting more into the aero side of things and then um, took on all of product development last October. Hmm. That's really cool. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been a fun ride. Hey, uh, my name is Steve Anderson. I started out in archery, actually kind of bow hunting your neck of the woods, not really your neck of the woods, but I started my archery career hunting the Lookout Mountain Unit in Oregon. So okay, um, originally from Boise, Idaho area, my uncles got me into it and um, stepped away from it for a while during high school and a little bit of college and was playing sports and all that and then came back to it in college. Got really into it, started working at a, a local shop, uh, worked there for about a year, ended up coming to Utah to work for Hoyt, and I worked at Hoyt in sales and marketing for about three years, and then uh, came over here to Easton and started started with Easton as a pro staff manager and doing some of our trade show stuff, and uh, now getting to do the product management for the target side of our business. Um, I've been on Team USA Archery since 2013. I have 20-something uh, international medals, um, seven U.S. national championships, one world record, and two world championship titles. 
Holy smokes. And uh, still going at it. So What's I've the, got uh, more into the, into the target side, but I still bow hunt every now and again too. What's the world record uh, that, that you own? It was a uh, team world record for qualification score. So you add in, <clears throat> when you go to a World Cup, you've got four people on your team. And when you qualify a team, you take the top three scores. And then those three people go on to shoot the the uh, team competition. And we we set the record basically, how do I explain this? Uh, on average, we missed nine points out of 720. So <laughs> we had... Yeah, we had one guy shooting. He shot seven twelve. I shot seven eleven. Another guy shot seven ten. Um, that's seventy two arrows at a ten ring. That's about the size of a Copenhagen lid. So we did all right that day. We were in Shanghai, China. Had some decent conditions, and we all just kind of made it happen. It was it was a fun one. And that that Copenhagen lid. That's like at sixty five or seventy yards, right? Or um, it's at 55 yards 55 that's 50, impressive yeah man. 50 meters man so huh. i'm excited when i hit a chew can one out of every, every three arrows at like 80 <laughs> yards <laughs> yeah you no know, that's yeah we're, that's hard <laughs> we did it so you, you shoot basically six ends or excuse me 12 ends of six arrows so you know nine out of the 12 times we hit it every time and then the other nine we missed it once Essentially, that's your average. Holy smokes! Okay, and so you, um, you currently are still hunting and all that stuff, and doing all the uh, compound, regular, everyday guy stuff too. Yeah, yeah, I hunt when I can. Um, I don't, I don't get to go too often now. Probably once every three, four years, I'll get a good tag and go after it. But uh, I still, I still enjoy it. I always have a hunting bow ready every year, and hmm. when I can, I go. Well, perfect. I'm, I'm, your background is going to come very valuable here. Cause I'm going to ask a lot of questions that probably re require the target background here. And, and I, I kind of sent my main question that I really wanted to lead in with that'll probably lead us down a bunch of rabbit holes. And, and, uh, mine is, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and, and I know from my past experience when I, um, knock tune, it, it always helps. It definitely helps. And I've been shooting axis for over 10 years. Um, just, just basically what I started with. I think my second year I went to Axis, and uh, just through my own learning and growing, and not really have anybody to teach me except maybe YouTube um, and, and learning from good and bad videos and stuff, trial and error. I've landed on my own process, but I've been wanting to get into a few different things um, that are kind of uh, I know hard to prove or disprove, but it has to do with lateral lateral deflection and then um basically the archer's paradox and then where you guys um have any studies or have you guys done any testing in relation to tuning with the uh actual backbone of the arrow in relation to the archer's paradox or anything like that so we yeah we look at stuff and you know how the arrow flexes and and uh, if there's an ideal plane to set up on when you're fletching and how it's going to be indexed from there um <clears throat> It can be very critical. I mean, we can, we're, we're going to discuss this in depth, but to start, I'll just start by saying it can be very critical or it can be very, very, uh, for lack of a better term, non-critical. just depends on spine consistency of your arrow and then tolerance stack that you get from other components in your arrow. Mm -hmm. So there's... You know, assuming all things are perfect, yes, you'd want to set your arrows up to flex the same direction every time. Um, but there's other 
factors that get involved that you know can make that less of an of an importance um <clears throat> and especially when you start sticking a broadhead with you know two or three wings on the front of it right and and i you know a common thing and, and th something that a lot of guys have been in the archery industry longer than i have that we're shooting you know xx75s and, and stuff like that um even with with the aluminum arrows common train of thought it becomes even less important for knock tuning because just the concentricity of the arrow versus a carbon shaft is said to be just much 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 better can you speak to that or, or, or elaborate on that for me yeah i'd like to talk to that one so that's exactly why on um, the high-level indoor shooters still prefer an aluminum arrow to a carbon arrow is because of exactly that. The spine consistency on an aluminum arrow is generally much better than on a carbon arrow. And so you do get much more precision. Um, I want to speak to that a little bit too on the Easton carbon arrow front because this is something not a lot of people realize and know about Easton because it's hard to see. I mean, you look at a tube that's made of black carbon and you just assume that they're all made the same. Easton's carbon arrows are made in the United States in 90 plus percent of them. We make them here in Utah, in the United States. The way that we're able to do that and compete with Asia is because we make them differently than the way that other companies make their arrows in Asia. And the way that everyone makes arrows in Asia is the normal uh, way you make a fishing pole or, or an arrow. It's called wrap and roll. And they take carbon and they wrap it around a mandrel. And then they, you know, they, they grind it and make it the right size that it's supposed to be, get it to right spine that it's supposed to be. And you end up with an arrow. And um, they, you know, they'll sort them for straightness spec and whatnot. But what you end up with is an arrow that has quite a bit of spine variation around the shaft. So if you were to measure that, it, you're going to get a, a, a the, the deviation between the high spine and the low spine on that arrow is much greater you know, than it would be on an aluminum arrow, for example. Mm -hmm. So on, when you make an arrow that way, spine is a lot more important because if you've got the, you know, the knock indexed in one place on that arrow and you turn it 90 degrees, you could vary in the actual spine value. I mean, you, let's say you're shooting a 340 spine arrow. Mm -hmm. You turn it 90 degrees. Now that might jump to 320. You and turn it another 90, it goes to 360. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you get, you could get spine variation as you go around the shaft. So with, with, I would say with normal conventional arrow, carbon arrow construction, um, what guys are doing with spine matching and all that is much more relevant, I guess. It, so the way I, I, and I'm not trying to disparage it, but mm -hmm. it's the way that Easton makes their errors in the United States is totally different. We actually have um, an automated process that um, is really, really different from the way that they conventionally wrap and roll for a couple of reasons. First, when you wrap and roll an arrow, like the way they do it in Asia, every one of those arrows is made on a separate mandrel. So I've been to those factories. I've watched them work. Imagine 75 people in a room all working on a separate table and a pile of mandrels with each of them. Each one of those mandrels has tolerances. They're a little, you know, a steel rod and they wrap carbon around it. Every arrow is made on a separate mandrel. And so when you end up with a lot of arrows 
a lot or batch, right? You, you end up with thousands of arrows. Every one of those needs to be sorted and they put them into groups. And then you end up with a dozen arrows that are matched at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So they're matching them for straightness and, and they're matching them for weight. Um, but when you, when you shoot those arrows, you get down to the last two. You need to go buy more arrows. Those new, that new dozen doesn't match the, the original dozen you had because that's just not feasible. They're, they're going to be, every time you buy a dozen arrows, if they're made in the conventional manner, they're matched to the dozen you buy, but they're not matched to the next dozen you buy. Typically, you'll see weight variations between them. Upwards of, could be 20, 30 grains sometimes between, you know, one arrow, the exact same arrow on another. Wow. Weight, spine consistency, the outside diameter, all of that can vary because some of those people are rolling them a little tighter than some of the other people are. And that, that's where all of these things start to factor in. So what Easton does is we're using the way that we can be cost competitive against Asia is we don't use a lot of manual labor. We have really sophisticated machinery. One machine uses one mandrel and can make an entire batch of arrows on one mandrel. So we might be talking on the order of 5,000 arrows in one batch on one machine. And if we leave that machine running, it can run 24 seven and we can run that same machine, same single mandrel for infinite number of arrows, arrow number one and arrow number 20,000 will weigh exactly the same. Hmm. And the other thing that's really cool with our process is because we don't have to grind them to get them to weigh or be a certain spine. We actually have a die on the outside and a mandrel on the inside so every arrow we make is net shape they never change so that eliminates um, the weight variance you get with conventional process and also because we don't use we use a different type of carbon fiber to make it we we don't end up with a seam our arrows are completely seamless so you don't have a high spine side to our arrows so if you were to put our arrows on a spine checker you just don't have much variation so the benefits you get with aluminum the reason the top pros choose large diameter aluminum arrows to shoot in vegas for example mm -hmm. is because of how precision they are and because you don't have to worry about that high spine issue like you would get with some of the other conventional wrap stuff with the way easton makes our hunting arrows here in the u.s you get a lot of the same benefits because we don't have that high spine problem and we don't have the weight inconsistency problem. Um, so to my point is, would you still benefit from um, trying to sort your stuff and possibly, but you're likely not going to see the difference because we're already, we're already so close with our cons consistency all the way around the shaft being mm -hmm. so, so good that you don't have to check it and you're going to have the same result likely as if you did check it. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And and I know from, from the building that I've done, I don't know how many, I probably haven't built as many as you guys because you, what you guys do for a living. But, you know, out of all the dozens of dozens of dozens of batches that I built, it seems like I, and my buddies that are arrow, I, I call them specialists, but, you know, they, they, they build arrows custom or for a living. Um, they, they can get rid of a few of the, of the uh, non-shooters that don't shoot as tightly. But I can get usually with a fixed blade head, um, 11 out of 12 on average to shoot. And then I usually have one troublemaker that really it takes a little bit more knock tuning. Um, 
than the rest with the Easton Axis 345 millimeters. Um, and I, I just got my spine checker. And so I'm, I'm running, running all of them through the, uh, spine checker and, and the spine consistencies, um, are pretty darn good. I mean, we're talking if they vary, you know, 0.2, I, it's pretty rare. There's one where I'm like, I couldn't even tell where the spine or the backbone was really. I mean, it was pretty damn impressive. So, um, it, do you guys with your access errors, do you still find that even with all that, the precautions that you take, do you still have to find yourself knock tuning at all? Or since you guys are shooting mechanicals, you can kind of get away from that. If I want to do it the right way from start to finish, <clears throat> you know, you hear, you hear stories about people who like float them in a bathtub, and yep. put them in a arrow press and bend them. And those <clears throat> not the best way to, to go about it. In my opinion, if you want to get it from the start and you want to go, all in on this, shoot them all through paper with no veins. So bare shaft through paper mm -hmm. and don't worry about what the tear is doing. If you're getting a high right tear, that's fine. Just make sure that all of your arrows get the same tear. Mm -hmm. So you can usually achieve that by turning a knock, indexing a knock until you get the same tear on arrow one through 12. Mark that and then fletch your arrow from there on so that they all have the same fletch pattern. That makes sense, and that that's kind of answering the question that I originally had. Is would you would you guys uh, basically when you're when you're knock tuning and say if I didn't have an arrow spinner from your guys' experience when I'm knock tuning, am I finding the stiffest or the backbone of the arrow typically, and that's where it's going to shoot the best? Because a lot of the things um, I see with the baits, and I don't know unless you had a slow motion camera or some way to test it that I don't know of. The lateral deflection, um, a lot of guys, not a lot of guys, but some of the guys out there are saying, no, it's a horizontal deflect, uh, deflection, which I I personally don't so, know how you'd prove or disprove, but I'd, I'd love yeah, to hear so that. In a perf I mean, when you're, when you're measuring spine on a spine tester, you're checking it in one point on the arrow. Right. You've got to imagine this, an arrow is a three-dimensional corkscrew hmm. that, that changes everywhere, every inch down that thing, every not only every inch down the length of the arrow, but every point circumferentially around the shaft has different, has, has totally different characteristics. So when you shoot it, so that's where you get into a static and versus dynamic spine mm -hmm. talk, right? When you're so just cause you static spine an arrow at a 340 doesn't mean it dynamically shoots like a 340. It all depends on, on everything that affects it. So because an arrow is a, a three dimensional corkscrew, and because you're, you've got a point in it and a knock in it and all the point and the knock has tolerance stack mm -hmm. and with the way you shoot it, the way you torque your bow, the way your release aid holds onto the string, the way it releases and the forces that it put on the arrow, they don't push from the direct center of the back of the arrow. And again, because the arrow is a 3D corkscrew, that's, it isn't so but like long story short, the answer is. No, when, when you do what Steve describes and you paper tune a bear shaft, you are not finding the static backbone of the arrow. Okay. You might find a static backbone of the arrow with your spine tester, but what Steve's saying is it does not mean that that's where it's going to paper tune the same as the others because of all the other factors I mentioned. I mean, hmm. there's things you're never going to be able to or measure with a tester that you're going to, that you'll pick up in, in shooting through paper.
See, that's the answer I was looking for. Because I was like, my whole goal is trying to save time on this thing. And I've, I've had mixed answers. And it's like, okay, I bought the spine um, basically gauge to in hopes. And, and now after um, talking to enough people, I'm pretty sure it's not going to do what I want it to do. But in hopes of saving me time of knock tuning because I'm lazy and I want to save time. Um, if I, I was just hoping if I could find the stiffest part of the arrow, fletch it accordingly, and then just go out to the range and just see how it shoots compared to not doing anything. And, and it still sounds like I'm still going to have to knock tune. <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. It's, but that takes time, right? Yeah. So if, if I was saying, if a guy shoots a poor quality arrow, then spine testing, it's probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're shooting a, a poor quality arrow that has a lot of spine variation, you're going to benefit a lot from quickly putting it in a spine checker. Um, most of the people that are buying an Easton axis, for example, or even our, our, well, our Easton 6.5, our brand new, um, mm -hmm. six and a half millimeter hunting shaft that's out this year. You could buy that arrow. Don't even look at spine testing and you're probably better off spine consistency wise than you would be if you were spine checking a competitor shaft that was made through the wrap and roll method. Mm. So, you, you, you kind of, we, the way we, by making it better to begin with, with a better process, it gives the consumer a better, uh, user experience and they don't even know why, but that the, what I just described is real. I mean, that's, it takes a lot of the variation out of the equation just because we can make it net shape, you know, net shape, meaning that every arrow is the same OD, every arrow is the same ID because we never had to grind material away to get it to that. That makes you sense. You know, it's, yeah. it's all the same. Well, I've, I, I, I don't know what, av or what percentage of your consumer actually would dive into it to the point where, that we're even talking now. Most guys are just screw a hundred grain tip on and, and you know, and head to the woods and, and I, I'm not even sure because I know you guys have the, the John Dudley crew, um, like the knock-on version of the Axis arrows with, and, and all that is is pretty much like a, a brass insert, correct? It comes with a brass insert, uh, a broadhead adapter ring, and then we're also, um, that's the match grade straightness. So you'd get a higher level of quality sort um, when we make that thing. Well, that leads me to a question for probably for Steve then. Uh, I've shot and tried to outshoot 0 0.006 versus like a 0 0.001. And it, I have to be, I'm not probably anywhere near where you, your level, man. And I know I'm not. Um, what differences to me, spine consistency is more important than straightness, but that doesn't mean as much as coming from a world champion archer. What's your opinion on spine consistency versus arrow straightness? And then how much of a straightness difference does it take for you on your, uh, you know, a shooter of your caliber to actually notice a difference? It's a good question. So <clears throat> I would rather have, <laughs> how do I, how do I answer this? That's kind of a tough one. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, assuming, <laughs> assuming you're looking at arrows that are of what I would call a mid grade or a high grade, you know, 3000 straightness or a 1000 straightness. I'd rather have the 3000 knowing that they have really good spine. And you know, if the, if the 1000s were, a little bit uh, wonky in their spine consistency or spine around shaft measurement, like we would call it, where you're actually checking it 360 degrees around the shaft. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> and that's where, like with with us, with the target side, we're all shooting 
an aluminum core product, our, our X10 arrow or like Easton ACCs, which a lot of guys have hunted with mm -hmm. or something like that. So those are made with a wrap and roll technology, like what Clint described they're doing uh, from our competitors. But our advantage is with those, we have, we have the spine consistency of an aluminum core. So that really aids those in being consistent. So I've never really had to worry too much about spine consistency. And it's something I have literally never checked uh, on any of my arrows. I, so how do you check your escape? You spin them, right? Right. So I'm, I'm going to spin them. I'm going to, like I said, if I really am doing it all the way, I'll shoot it through paper mm -hmm. and get them all getting the same tear. But I've done that. I, I, I do that with an all carbon wrap and roll arrow, like say our, super drive 25 that i shoot for 3d that's a wrap and roll uh carbon arrow so you do want to kind of pay a little more attention to those with my aluminum arrows i just go and shoot them right I'm, I'm not too concerned i can get to the nuts and bolts of it by figuring out where i thought an arrow should hit versus where it actually hit and if it repeats that pattern a handful of times it's probably coming out of the bin and that's when I'll usually first thing I'll check is the knock bushing or the knock mm -hmm. uh, and move those. So, sorry, I'm getting away from straightness or spine consistency, but there is a component of straightness that, that very much matters, especially with a broadhead on the front of the arrow. Mm -hmm. So if you've I, got, if you've got issues there, I think you're going to be fighting. I, some I would, I would tend to agree that straight straightness matters more to accuracy to a release aid shooter yes. than it does to a finger shooter. Yeah, especially with compounds. Spine consistency matters a lot more to accuracy to a finger shooter than it does a compound or a release aid shooter. Does that make sense? Why to you? Um, you might, well, I read studies on it, um, recently where what, somebody from Easton actually did a study and wrote a, um, and they were talking about finger shooters versus release aid shooters, but would it be because you're introducing more variables with fingers i mean what would what, be the reason what happens when you have you watched a slow motion video of a finger release versus a, re, a release aid release i don't think i have uh-uh so google it you'll you'll see some slow motion videos of archer paradox when you shoot a bow with fingers mm -hmm. the arrow the paradox is much much more pronounced the forces of your fingers they're causing the arrow to bend um horizontally and when you introduce spine variation to your arrow you're getting clearance problems because that arrow has to bend around the bow mm -hmm. and your when your bow is properly tuned for fingers your arrow your fletchings are actually out away from your rest when they're passing the rest and so because of that nuance spine is way more important than with a compound with a compound you're using a drop or a compound release aid sorry Mm -hmm. it's the, the key thing is the release aid when you use a release aid the arrow pretty much stays in a linear plane it, it flexes slightly up and down but it stays in line and if you're using a blade it slams the blade the same every time or if you're using drop away it just it just doesn't touch anything right so it doesn't really matter if your arrow spines are off a little bit it might change the way the arrow deflects slightly but it's not, you're not making contact with things or it's not nearly as critical as it would be with a release. The other thing is with finger shooters, they're, um, 
your fingers are introducing a lot of the paradox into it based on your release and how you and how you release so any variation in how your the the string comes off your fingers from shot to shot is is magnified if your arrows aren't the same spine wise that makes sense so these the horizontal um i guess planing or 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 paradox is more with the finger shooters. So when people are arguing, having an argument, a lot of it probably depends on what release aid or how they're releasing the arrow. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's obviously not a whole lot of people shooting fingers with a compound anymore, but, uh, another thing to keep in mind is that a compound, most all of them generally are like Clint said, they bend the arrow up and down, but there's also a good bit of side load coming into the bow from the cable guard right as you pull those cables over you're introducing quite a bit of load into the whole system so if you're not getting a straight knock if, if everything went straight down the pipe right like the knock travel was absolutely perfectly straight mm -hmm. then in an ideal world you would just use a really stiff spine it would just go straight it wouldn't bend the thing at all the problem is we don't hold the bow the same we don't it, it comes off our face different we cause inflection in the string deflection in the string as we fire and that arrow that's where the arrow spine right getting the right spine it needs to absorb some of that uh differentiation from shot to shot so would a stiffer arrow be less forgiving if you're shooting overly stiff if you're making errors in your form versus a properly spined arrow in my experience yes i've always found especially at distance that a weaker arrow not a weaker arrow, but a properly spined arrow <laughs> is obviously more accurate. A stiff arrow at distance, I always felt like it was more critical. And there's, I don't, I don't use the term forgiveness very much because if your bow is set up how and everything, everything's working good, it's going to hit behind the pin, right? Mm -hmm. and that's really all we can ask for. It's, it's the situation where I go, oh, you know, uh oh, I was. Uh, Moving a little left when I broke that, I, I think that should be like 10 ring at nine o'clock. And I look and it's nine ring at nine o'clock or, or, you know, pushing out towards the eight ring at nine o'clock. If I feel like my misses are magnified from where they should be, there, there's two things I'll look at. And that's one is spine, the other is point weight. And I'll start making adjustments. They don't always correlate to what the old school train of thought is where, you know, more point weight decreases the, yeah, effectively makes the arrow stiffer. Sometimes I'll go to a weaker arrow. Um, sometimes I'll go to more or less point weight. Sometimes I'll try a stiffer arrow and, and get the result I'm looking for. But I don't don't always see those by-the-book reactions and solutions that are in even our old Easton tuning guide, which it's probably about time Clint and I re rewrite. <laughs> okay. Well, there's, there's old charts. Speaking about old charts... Uh, where if you move the rest farther away from the riser back towards technically the string, that would help stiffen the arrows fly it up versus most guys suck it right in behind the riser and that, that rest is flipping over the shelf. Um, have you played with that at all? Because I've never actually played with moving the rest farther back to stiff, you know, to get a stiffer response. Is, can you talk to, can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah. So that's called torque tuning in my world. And so basically what Garrett's saying is you're, the point where your rest would hold your arrow, whether you move it forward, like away from the shooter or back towards the shooter. And doing that can 
can create a bit of, this is about the only place I will use the term forgiveness in archery <laughs> because I think it can actually forgive poor grip or poor torque that you apply into the bow to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a point and it changes with every bow, every arrow, every shooter as well, how they grip the bow. Um, and then it's very dependent on how far away from you the sight is. So your sight radius meaning the distance from peep to pin uh, when measured at full draw. And I can't give you a blanket statement saying if your sight radius is 33 inches, then put your arrow rest, you know, so it's two inches behind the blah, blah, blah. So it's something every shooter has to test with every setup they use, you know, and you can get a pretty good idea of where stuff's going to fall for you over time, assuming your setup's the same, but, Basically, what you're looking to do when you're torque tuning is there, there's a relationship between the node of the arrow, which is the bend point in the arrow where the arrow actually bends as you fire it, um, your grip position, so like where the pivot point of your grip is. So if you have a super high wrist, meaning um, you shoot as if there's an old school recurve grip that you know has a lot of angle to it it's more your, your wrist is more parallel to the ground or your hand is more parallel to the ground and i'm sitting here like gesturing at clint and the <laughs> same here <laughs> no one here can see me most compound shooters shoot a low wrist right they just jam their hand up into the grip most grips are low wrist these days uh, but anyhow what you'll see is there's a there's a point in your hand if you were to turn your hand left and right you'll see there's a point where you're going to get the maximum amount of travel right? Left and right. And then there's a point more in the back of your wrist, right around your wrist bone, where you really don't move a whole lot left and right. Now, in my experience, for me and my sight radius, having the blade of my rest closer to that point in my wrist gives me more forgiveness left and right when I put incidental torque in the bow. Now, this is something, like I said, you got to test it the best way to test it gear bow zero do it at 20 30 yards you don't have to go crazy 20 30 yards put a little torque to the left or the right whichever one is comfortable for you that allows you to still aim fire an arrow see where it hits do this as many times as you can try to get a good idea of exactly how far left or right that arrow hits when you put that much torque in then move your rest forward or back do the same thing got to side in again and then you got to right side in with normal grip get it right in the middle and then perform the same test and you'll find where somewhere in there front to back position of your rest you'll find a a spot where it just doesn't miss as as large Hmm. so it's very hard to repeat that same amount of torque it's not it's not an easy tuning method to do but if you're if you're somewhat consistent you can probably get a decent idea of what's better where so if you're if you're actually executing a pretty really or really consistent shot with minimal torque and you were doing that, would you, in your opinion, notice much of a difference than if you weren't introducing torque torque and then purposely trying to see how much it moves? I might need you to restate that one. Okay, so say if I just did that whole thing, that whole process, but I wasn't introducing torque, I was just shooting my regular way. Would a guy actually notice much of a difference if he wasn't purposely introducing torque and just move the rest farther away from the shelf and okay, tried, yeah. tried sighting in that way. 
Uh, you may. You may just notice that your left and right misses clean up a bit. Now, what will happen in that scenario is guys, guys will go out. They'll start doing the test in one position, you know, and they might do this over the course of a few days. And uh, by the end of it, they're shooting a little better because they've been shooting for a good bit of time. They've shot a number of practice arrows. Now they're shooting a little better. So usually the second result is always going to be the one that looks better. <laughs> I mean, I've done that where there, there's one particular target in international field archery that is that is very difficult. And I tried about a hundred ways to manipulate the system to make it a little easier on me by trying different arrows and uh, you know, different sized arrows. It's only, it's only a 10 to 15 meter target. So it's not very far, but it's small. It's a pain in the butt. And they usually put it on a super steep hill. Mm. So I tried all these different things to see if I could make it work. And by the end of it, I went right back to the setup. I started with my normal setup, but I just blasted a thousand arrows at this stupid target. So I was pretty good at it by then. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's something to keep in mind too, but you, you might find that you do see a, a better position somewhere in there you know I, for most guys they or most shops will just slam the rest as far forward so it's sitting on the shelf and right i think, I think for most you want it pulled back the, just a hair the other the other thing to consider with that is there's not a lot of arrow rests out there that give you a lot of movement front to back yeah especially hunting rests mm -hmm. so it's you almost there's not a lot of rests out there that are gonna move enough to matter um well i don't personally know, know anybody that shoots an overdraw anymore i mean to me, I, I don't know anybody that shoots one. Yeah, I don't know anyone who uses one for hunting. The yeah, other they, factor there is most hunting bows now, the cables are too close to the riser to really use much of an overdraw. And like on a Hoyt, like I would shoot for hunting, you can't, on my target bows, I wrap, the, the rest actually wraps around the tech bar, goes around the back, that bar that, you know, it's like a brace bar. They call it the tech bar on the Hoyt. Mm -hmm. Um and on a on my hunting bows, you have about a quarter inch of gap there, maybe a little more, but not enough to get an arrow rest in behind it. So I'm pretty much forced to use it up front. But at the same time, you can do the torque tuning with the position of your sight. There's there's two components of that, and you're far better off watching a YouTube video than listening to me explain it. <laughs> and someone out there probably has some good diagrams drawn up that explains how your sight radius, the distance, you know, the, your sight sticks out or, and your, and your rest position kind of correlate. So generally the further out your sight, the further back you need your rest to be. Um, yeah, someone, someone could watch the video and they, you can do a little bit of both with your hunting setup, move the rest, move the site and get it where it's working. Well, in, in relation to, uh, cause cause you're talking about torquing and, and, um, basically lateral misses, um, in relation to your cable guard adjustments, and then like on my PSE, a lot of guys are having them set to two o'clock. Um, do you do much? Because I don't know many guys that really do much tuning with their actual cable guard adjustments. Can you elaborate on your process if you have one for cable guard uh, tuning or adjustments? Or yep. All my target bows have it. Um, what I do with it, I'll either use, like I I will paper tune generally. Um, get it to a good spot, paper tuning. If I need to use it right there, paper tuning. Okay. I'll try that, you know, to, to help say I'm getting a left air. You move the cable guard in a little bit. That can sometimes help. Sometimes it hurts. I, there's no, like I said, you go back to what these things all say about 
left here, move the rest right, right here, move the rest left. That's all out the window these days. Hmm. Um, same with same with cable guard tuning for paper. So what I'll generally do is get the bow shooting at some point, and I like to do the, the basis of my outdoor tuning at 70 meters because the way the target size works, it's comfortable for me to aim at. Um, it gives me, I have enough room to see error, right? At 50 meters, you can make a mistake and sometimes fudge everything back in and, and it doesn't look too bad, right? Uh, at 70 meters, you make that mistake, it's going to show up. So ideally you have a big 70 meter indoor range and you can go do this, but not everyone has that access. So we, when I'm doing that, I'll get a, I'll get a bow shooting and then I'm just going to try the cable guard in different positions and see if I get consistently better groups. And with some of the apps that are out there today, you can really identify, you can go shoot a 36 arrow round and you can go shoot another 36 arrow round and it'll give you average group size. You can take out flyers, right? If you just know you completely jacked it up and, uh, and go from there and, and actually see, you know, if there is a quarter inch difference average over the course of a, a set of arrows. That's impressive. I used to track, I used to have charts and track my groups on, you know, from zero or from, I guess, 10 to 80 or hundred yards. And I would track my arrow groups. I track my arrow sizes with a measuring tape. And I did that for about a, two months and just hearing you say, yeah, I track a quarter inch and you're shooting 55 yards when you do that. Uh, 77, 77 yards. And you're, you're tracking a quarter inch difference. That just tells me that you're like <laughs> on a whole nother level that I'd not even well, thought again, of. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm taking out known bad quantities, right? So I'm using my good shots and say, okay, that was a good shot. That was a good shot. That was a good shot. So that, that's kind of where you have to I, – I call it call your shot tuning. Now, it's not a real name for it, but if I'm calling my shot, I shoot, I shoot it. I say, okay, that should be dead center, and I look, and it's not. You know, and that's happening consistently but not in an inconsistent placement. Then I'm going to start looking into why. Mm -hmm. So if, if I go, oh, that was a really crappy shot, that's not getting put into the, the statistical analysis. So that's, that's me. That's not an issue with the bow or the arrow or the setup. So I'm looking to see what, what I'm getting out of the setup when I'm doing my part right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I kind of want to get into a, the fray here and kind of get into the outer edges with, because um, I'm, I'm sure you probably messed with this, Steve, is arrow clocking. And uh, from all the stuff that I've seen and done personally, I don't think there's actually much of a benefit to it. Um, but that's somebody with my shooting capabilities, somebody with that's been on in your area of archery. Have you ever messed with clocking or known actually any benefits to doing clocking? Uh, when you say clocking, like move, moving the the rotating knock, right? Yeah, the actual rotation, the natural. Some some guys think that there's an actual oh, that, rotation. That, that. Yeah. Um, and for the audience, we probably should, should explain it's, it's, we're talking about not fletching an arrow, bear shafting it, and then tracking which way the arrow is naturally wanting to rotate off of the bow. That's clocking, um, yeah. for the audience. So that's what we're talking so about what, now. What I have seen is arrow is strings that have a right hand twist, which is most every bow string built will tend to spin the arrow to the left. And my, my string builder actually went and did 
about 200 minutes worth of video on this. Uh, <laughs> really got into the weeds on it, where he would he was he was serving part of the string, leaving part of it unserved to see if he'd get different results. And from what he could tell, there there is some factor into what what is served and what is not, and blah blah blah. But long story short, when your string is completely served as you would shoot it generally it's going to spin the arrow to the left from what i've seen hmm. so i don't worry too much about it because i've been beat countless times by guys who have an arrow that spins naturally to the left and they set their fletching with a right helical to spin it to the right mm -hmm. i i set up with a left helical because it gives you more clearance on the cables so i'm going to do that and i'm going to tell it which way to spin and i like the clearance on the cables and it gives you a little more clearance over your finger if you shoot a really high risk or excuse me, low risk grip and your index finger gets up above the shelf a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, some guys may have felt, you know, they've shot the bow and felt a uh, fletching tick off their index finger and it, it can change the point of impact a bit. So left helical gives me more clearance on the cables and on my, my finger. That's for a right hand shooter. And you're, you are a right handed shooter, correct? Correct. Yeah. So you're you're gonna blow people's minds saying left helical with a right-handed shooter. <laughs> I know. <something>. Yeah. <laughs> wait. Wait. Yeah. I, if that blows minds, wait until we talk about FOC. Well, that's that's coming because um, and I I personally want to see different things for, from East and me personally, knowing that you guys um actually made like custom arrows for Dudley and 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 you know took his marketing and, and all his uh, influence there made an arrow for him um, based off of what I've seen there's a huge insurgence for um, like uh, footers or impact collars whatever you want to call them and I know I've sold, sold a shit ton of those things um, especially for the for the hit insert system um, and I don't know if Clint I, I'm sure Steve probably didn't but Clint, I don't know if you watched yeah. that video where we did the arrow torture test with the day six and versus the uh, the footed um, Easton axis with the hit and uh, um, man, it, it really make, made a giant difference in the durability of the axis arrows. And they, they were keeping up with the durability of a super thick walled, um, you know, uh, centric outsert system from day six, which is freaking tough. And they were neck and neck. I didn't, I don't know if you guys have ever looked at into actually doing anything like that, um, but I know that from my personal experience, and I, I don't know how many hundreds of those things I've sold, but I've sold a shit ton of those things for Easton Axis uh, arrows for, for, for the hit system in particular. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Um, people have been doing footers for, I mean, long before modern archery was mm -hmm. even around. You know, footers were something that was done when, I mean, the first, some of Doug Easton's very, very first wooden arrows in the early 1900s were footed cedar shafts hmm. that used a um a different a different wood in the front and they had a, a foot to them that versus the wood in the back i mean so you're absolutely right it improves the strength of them um i think from my perspective i look at it in terms of it's a niche product right now mm -hmm. i think the guys that are going to care about a footer or top of the pyramid guys and that market is pretty well served with the people that are making those products today. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, for, for, for where, what we bring to the table with, with things, I think it's something we should continue to consider and, and debate here, whether or not we want to make a footer, but um, it's, 
in the big scheme of things, it's, it's pretty low volume stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, as far most guys are going to take an arrow, they're not going to think about it. They're going to screw a broadhead on and they're going to go shoot a deer. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's, and it's good enough for most. I mean, you'll, you'll see some improvement in strength. Sure. But I don't think as a general rule, there's a, we have a problem with arrows not being durable enough today. I mean, for most people, they're good enough. Um, right. And that's the kind of stuff I have to look at when I'm dedicating, you know, R and D time and resources to be able to justify new projects. It's, you know, what's going to be the payback, mm. and and how much is it the product and the cost? But yeah, I think I definitely think there's benefit to doing it and using a footer for sure. Yeah. Well, I I know from from the, the many years I've shot Easton, you know, if you shoot them enough, I mean, eventually you're going to get the bristly, the broom bristly ends on them, um, just from abuse and wear and tear and shooting them. Uh, you know, a hundred times, you're eventually going to get that. Um, at least I have. What is it you're talking about? Kind of like a brooming, like a, like a micro hair cracks on the end of the arrow. And, uh, I, everybody I've, I've, I've known and everybody I've seen, um, if you shoot a lot and and granted, I shoot probably more than 99% of your customers that shoot Eastern axis five millimeters. But, um, eventually if you shoot them enough, you start getting these micro, uh, best way I can is like micro hair um, cracks in the end of it. I don't know if you guys have, um, i you know, I've seen that a little bit from time to time. I, one just, this is just a suggestion yeah. I would have. I think a lot of times because the axis shaft it interfaces directly with the point you're screwing into it, uh-huh. there's not a collar of a, an insert or anything to sort of be a, a bridge between the arrow and the point. Right. Right. That every point has a different slightly different radius from one brand to another where it meets the shaft. So that when you, when you deburr the inside of the axis arrow, mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully you're doing that. I mean, a lot of guys I've seen that have split the end of the arrows because they didn't deburr, they didn't chamfer the inside of that arrow enough. So and when, you, so when you're saying deburring, is, are you using the little biscuit you guys use with like the nipple thing? And then you're, you're, um, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I do that. Yeah. Yeah, but if you don't take off enough material, you're not deburr. What you're deburr is probably the wrong word because you don't want to. You're not. There's not a burr you're removing. You're actually putting a bevel on the inside of that arrow right. so that it doesn't make contact. You don't want the inside diameter right at the corner to make contact at all with the radius on the stem of the broadhead. Makes if sense. it does make contact, it will. It could split it if you hit it hard, you know, I mean, it, it takes a lot of load there. So having a really healthy chamfer on the ID of the arrow is important. So if you're seeing a little bit of that, um, I would deburr it heavier, put, I mean, put a heavier chamfer on it with that tool than you're currently doing. Okay. And yeah. see if that, and see if that improves it. That, that, that would be my suggestion. I don't typically see cracking ever on my stuff that I've made. I, I mean, I, you shoot way more than I do, but that's not something I'm, I would say is a normal event. Okay. Yeah. We're talking, you know, not, not minus my shoulders last year have been a little rough, but you know, 18, 20,000 shots a year, um, was what I did last. No, I don't know if it was even last year. It might've been last year, but we're talking more. That's more than, I don't know how, what, what percentage it is, but that's more than most people yeah. to, to say. Yeah. You're shooting wraps, that's a ton of shots. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of, and when I, when I talk to anybody about Easton arrows, I always suggest a footer and not only am I supporting a buddy, but I, I totally believe that it does make light and day difference. Um, and I hunted with, without footers for 
years and never had an issue. But um, after the testing, I just always gravitate towards the next and best thing or, or what I think that can improve my setup and stuff. And and leading from the footers into where Steve was kind of hinting about the FOC, um, it does add a little bit of weight forward. And FOC is a good good way to get people to uh, get pissed off or really happy at you, Steve. So I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> so yes. Uh, where I, I would love to hear, um, and, and I always look to competitive archery, um, to kind of influence where my next builds or my next ideas or, or, um, what I should be looking at doing kind of like traditional arch archery setups. I kind of look to them to get the most out of what they get. Um, they just don't start with as much energy as we compound guys do. So, um, I would love to hear what your target experience has been and your hunting experience has been and where you land on that FOC spectrum. <clears throat> so yeah i had a calculator pulled up let me let me get that again <laughs> so just to clarify i do shoot compound and target as well just so we're not confusing anyone there but uh my setup so a lot of guys like they're they're looking foc or the new extreme foc and all this stuff and yes that's all well and good but when the guys who make a living <laughs> who doing this game when they're using most of them are maybe approaching 12, 13%. Um, when I won world championships in Ireland, I was shooting eight and a half percent FOC the next year <laughs> in uh, a little bit different game. When we won world championships as a team, I was used, I had a arrow that was about 10.2% FOC. So, that's a hundred grain point on the one setup and 120 on the other. Mm. Um, in my 3d stuff, I might use up to like a 140 and indoor, you know, you're using a 200 or 250, but that's a, a much different story, a much different game and a much different arrow as well. Hmm. So I, uh, I don't have an issue with you, with, you know, getting a, a heavier point weight or going up, uh, loading up the front of the arrow a little more. Last setup I used was a pretty good shooting setup, and it was it was a prototype arrow we're making that's 200 spine, about 12 grains per inch, and I had the 55 grain titanium half out insert and a uh, 100 grain point. So I was I was probably around 10, 11 percent FOC maybe. Uh, again, not a whole lot. A lot of the best shooters in the world they're they're using 120 grain points in there compound setups a lot of the best recurve shooters in the world they stick to about 100 uh, reason being with a, with a recurve you know imagine you're holding the string with with three fingers right if you get more pressure on one of those top or bottom fingers you you get a vertical string in your group right so the more point weight you have the more that's affected so they they want to go with a lighter point that still offers them some measure of tunability and forgiveness shooting around the the riser but um mo most of the top recurvers you're looking about nine percent that's what their foc is so going back about 30 years now easton did a lot of research back when our facility was in Cal southern california on foc and that is actually what was used to develop the original nib points hmm. that we that we still sell today. They're, they, they, we call them a 7% nib and a 9% nib and they, they're designed. I mean, they're, it, my point is that a long time ago, we, it was important 
to the company that really understand FOC. And we tested heavy FOC, light FOC, and we were pretty well convinced with the data back then that um, seven to nine percent, like Steve says, is optimum for target, and ten to fifteen percent is optimum for hunting mm. with a broadhead. And it seems that that has stood the test of time. When you when you're talking about guys, that, and again, when I say that, it's the guys that make a living shooting their bows, the guys that are good enough to tell. I mean, there's a big difference between Steve and me, and I'm not a guy that's good enough to tell. Steve is. But I, I tend to think that you, you got to look at theories only become truths when they can be peer-reviewed and proven with science and, and over time and a lot of data. And um, a lot of this extreme FOC stuff is, is, is a fad, but I don't, until people start winning Olympics, with 20 plus percent FOC, I'm not a believer. Mm. Um, and we kind of joke around it here. We call it freaking overcomplicated <laughs> when, when people start going FOC crazy. It's, uh, I, I, so my recommendation I tell people, you know, that 10 to 15% for a hunter, um, 7 to 9% for a target shooter, it's pretty well been proven with, I mean, metal after metal after metal after metal and these guys yeah. making a living with their bows will do anything to get a point <laughs> right trust me. right you know if, if it could get them a point they would be doing it and there there's another factor well there's a the parachute I mean, fact too yeah i mean the your group will open up a distance yeah you get what's called vertical tipping so when the if you're going to use a lot of a lot of point weight you need a lot of drag to mm -hmm. to counteract it right so then you need more more vein. Then you start getting uh, serious degradation of speed downrange, and you have more effect from the wind and yada yada yada. So the other factor in my head now have I have I went and scientifically proven this? No, but I'm pretty sure I'm I'm fairly <laughs> spot on with this. You, the arrow wants to tip to the front. Okay, if you've got 20% FOC, it really wants to tip to the front. Now you fire this, you're at home sighting in on level ground, getting it all sighted in. You got your pins dialed in, all that. Then you go and you take a 21 degree downhill shot, which is like a 10% cut or thereabouts um, at an animal, right? Now, when you're shooting on flat ground, that arrow wants to tip to the point end. So it, it starts to tip, then you get the vein starting to catch air and it does its thing and you, you hit behind the pin or whatever you, you're sighting and you make it work. Now you start shooting up or down hills and it's already tipped or it's got the point straight uphill, you know, now, now it's, it's tipping at a much different rate. It wants to tip much faster or not at all if you're shooting it downhill. So hmm. I don't, I can't quantify that you're going to see, you know, a big spread and cut or anything like that, but, what I can say is if you're using a rangefinder for hunting with a ballistic calculator, it's probably not going to work as well with an extreme FOC setup. That's, that's in my head again. Hmm. So yeah, so it could be making all this up, but, <laughs> but it, once you get over 15%, our position is you have diminishing returns. You're, you're not going to get any more improvement, but you're going to start hurting yourself. That's you might a, as well just shoot a heavier arrow. That's a yep. really strong statement. 
<clears throat> and there's a lot of guys that are shaking their heads up and down <laughs> right now. I know my buddy Brian um, from Day take, Six is is absolutely loving what you're saying right now. <laughs> I mean, it, it go. I I just would say, you know, you can have all the theories you want, but correct. Prove it on prove it on the podium. Well, I've yeah. um, I you're talking to the to the well, probably one of the most nerdiest consumers you'll ever talk to. Uh, I I've built multiple arrows same we'll just say i think it was 457 grains i built three arrows 457 grains one at five percent foc on purpose um i glued a uh, arrow weight tube in the back of the shaft which i wouldn't suggest but um and then i've also built i built the same arrow at i think uh 15 or 18 percent and then like 20 something percent three different shafts obviously but the five percent um foc arrow um was like foot and a half high. I mean, the, the tipping point, which I'm making Steve's point, um, driving that one home where the point made me feel like it was the back end was getting pushed down, making the trajectory higher. Uh, and then the heaviest FOC arrow, um, was definitely the lowest. And we're talking between those two at 80 yards. It was, it was a few feet worth of difference. And it was, it made me feel like it was dragging that front of the, of the arrow farther down. And I was losing trajectory, not because of the weight, but because of the weight forward. So that's just from, from one of my experiments that I did. I think that was last year. Um, I definitely noticed a difference. And then anywhere between, um, probably 12, 10 to 16%, those arrows probably would be close to smacking each other. So... That's just from my own personal studies. I don't know if you guys have ever done anything like that, but um, for sure, I, I noticed a difference in that. That was the outcome. Yeah. So. I, yeah, I mean, there. We love a good controversy, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, so. that right there. That, I don't know how that would piss anybody off. That's just me shooting and shooting and shooting three different arrows for probably an hour, proving to myself that there was a difference in point of impact and, and granted, you know, was the spines all consistent and everything? Probably yeah. not, you know, but we're talking a foot and a half difference at 80 yards. That's pretty, that's pretty giant. Um, when all three arrows weighed the exact same and they were, should have all been pretty damn close to being, I mean, the one that 5% FOC was probably obviously stiffer than the others, but, um, I mean, that's still a big change and I don't know. I just, I, I found that extremely, extremely interesting. Were all the arrows the same diameter? Ooh, man. Um, one was a cheetah. One was a... Um, and the other two were Beeman ICS Hunter. So the Beeman... The Beam, I, I forget I forget what they were. But the Beeman, um, I think they were larger diameter. Them, I, I couldn't tell you. I'd have to go back and look. Off the top of my head, they were close, but I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. The, the only way to really get that... I mean, what you're looking at with, like, the vertical spread, like one being a foot higher and all that, I mean, a good bit of that might just be where it sat on the rest versus the others, you know? Correct, sat up yeah. Higher. yeah. So, I, I don't – if you want to really check that, what here's what you do. You go get them all sided in at 40 yards, then you shoot them at 50 and see what the or, – or side them in at 70 and shoot them at 80 with your 70-yard pin, right? And then mm -hmm. track your drop. So that, that's how you'd want to look at it um, to, to get a good idea of what they're truly doing with like a downrange ballistic. Mm, that, that makes sense. I mean, I've, I've had uh, I brought my buddy Brian from day six. He's like, that's basically what you need to do is, 
is if you're wanting to see, you know, shed velocity and what the difference is in, in between, you know, your shed velocity for weights of arrows and FOCs is shoot them all um, together. Just have like six of each arrow and then shoot them from 20 out to, you know, 80 or whatever. And then just see the um, amount of drop between each arrow. And then eventually you're going to see that hopefully I, I think what you'd see is that the heavier arrow would eventually um, – maintain its velocity more because the momentum's carrying the arrow more farther down range. But, um, that had nothing to do with FOC or anything. Yeah. You'd want to check it with each arrow, basically graphing the trajectory with each arrow sighted in individually, because if you do them all together, the diameter of the arrow, imagine one is 20 thousandths of an inch larger. That's like moving your sight up 20 thousandths of an inch as well. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, fairly substantial in, in how it, it sits off the off the rest but uh one, one thing i've done in the past one of the games i i play a lot of uh, the world field archery the first day is unmarked distance and so i do want to have some speed and i've tested arrow setups that were one was a heavier point weight you know overall heavier arrow the other one was a lighter shaft with a lighter point weight and we're talking maybe 20 30 grains difference but i wanted to see what truly gave me the most trajectory forgiveness at distance so i would shoot them i'd side a meat chain at 45 meters and then i would shoot them at 50 meters and i could look right on the scoring rings and know which one hit lower right so the one that fell lower was less ideal for me if i'm going to make a a a distance judging error it's going to be out further like 50 meters or beyond um so that's how i would do it there, there's there's a lot of ways to do it, but I, I want to figure out where my where my likely error is going to be, and then see which one gives me the most forgiveness at that range. Makes sense, makes sense. And I just from your hunting setup, so you're shooting a low, I guess a lower FOC for your target setup, along with most of the other target shooters. And I've always wondered what on average, like I'm with you guys, if if you were getting better accuracy out of a 16%, then you'd see everybody shooting a 16%, right? I mean. I mean, it just makes sense if someone's outscoring everybody and he's always shooting that. What is your hunting setup look like? Um, calculating that right now. My while Steve's doing that, I can tell you. I mean, I'm shooting. Um, I like using the the AC Pro Comp Target Arrow for hunting that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, and that with that arrow and uh, titanium half out, um, I'm shooting a 340 spine, 28 inch. It, I'm right around. 14 to 15 somewhere in there that's to me that's perfect i mean i'm looking at the formula yeah. four millimeter I, ac pro comps but i can't you guys are out of stock on them so i can't buy them um <laughs> but um hopefully things pick <laughs> pick back up because i've got like a huge order because i'm doing arrow testing this year is pretty much the year for arrow testing like broadheads was last year but um the ac pro comps are on my list but um i've also got another question since you're shooting you know uh uh, an aluminum arrow basically how long does it take shooting regular foam or is there a a rule of thumb for degradation of straightness out of an aluminum arrow because that's one one of my hang-ups with going with an aluminum jacket or just like like an acc or an fmj you mean yeah so every arrow will drift and straight i mean any arrow it doesn't matter if it's aluminum or if it's carbon Hmm. if you shoot it into a target a thousand times it, it the straightness of it drifts every shot I didn't um, know that. Yeah, it, it it's it doesn't become crooked, but it just it drifts. It has like you know it lives within a little a little, little window window of, of, of straightness. Yeah. So one time it might be 
you know, you might route on the point, it might move a thou or two. Um, it, it, it can do that. So if you're using them as intended, you, you won't have an issue with the aluminum core or whatever. That will never, I mean, how many, you'll how never much are you shooting your pro, pro tours yeah. in summer, in outdoor Those season? Two you're, years, yeah, of you, a lot of shots. Two years of how many shots? I, the, I, tens of thousands? Ten, yeah, 20, 20 30,000. I mean, the, the point is, you'll wear the abrasiveness of any target on the outside of the carbon, which is on any arrow, will be more damaging than will the impact of an aluminum cord of, of the arrow into a target with an aluminum core arrow. So like I said, if you're using them as intended, you're not like hitting rocks and stuff. <laughs> if you're shooting a that's home a big target, if. that's a big if. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there are people who will, they will come say to us like, well, these arrows do better when I hit the wall. I'm like, well, I, <laughs> probably the arrow for you, you know, uh -huh. um, but I, me personally, I would rather have, um, the aluminum core in an arrow. I mean, because of all the benefits you get of the spine consistency of the aluminum core that it's for me, it's a better shooting experience than it is to worry about any, whether or not it can bend or not. Yeah. The other advantage to that, let me say that everyone always assumes that, well, it can bend as a negative. We can straighten every one of those aluminum core arrows in our factory. So just because it bends, that's a good thing because it means we can bend it straight when we make them. Hmm. Can you bend them straight after they've after they've been used? Like re-straighten uh, them. If you knew, if you knew how to, if you knew how. <laughs> I mean, but it's ask Steve. Steve we, last week we were actually doing an event um, here, learning about arrow straightness, and and we actually sat Steve down on a bench and tried to get him to straighten an arrow, and it didn't. It didn't work out too well. Yeah, I, immediately, I immediately grew in the first one. I mean, so. the, some of these guys that are doing that in our straightening department here have been working here for almost 40 years. Hmm. And they get paid on a piece rate, actually. They, they, the, the, you know, the better they do, the more they make. So, and they get quality checked on those too. So, yeah, it's so, yeah, you, the answer is you could. Um, That's crazy. If you, you could re straighten them, but you, you, they live within their little window. Like I say, they, they all, They'll all stay there as long as you're shooting them as intended, like Steve said. But I would rather have an arrow that we can make perfect. Hmm. And all of the benefits about that arrow. I mean, there's a reason why every gold medal in the Olympics that's ever been won has been won with an Easton X-10. Since it's released. Since yeah. it's released in 1996. Yeah, I read that. And um, that's a barreled shaft, correct? Like when I say barrel for the audience, that's like a wine barrel where – it gets fatter in the middle and skinnier or yep. smaller diameter towards the knock. And you guys might not know this, but I took your Easton uh, become a pro thing and I got my certificate like early last week. So nice. it took me You've like uh, half an hour, but you know, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, I, I would contend the reason why that way we're so dominant in that, in that game is because of the AC, because of the AC construction. Hmm. That having that aluminum core on the inside, carbon on the outside, it takes the best attributes of both materials and gives you a supercharged, best of the best situation. Now, you guys came out with a hunting, uh, the T64 tapered shaft. Yep. Um, yeah. Now, one of my hangups with that is for a guy that maybe cuts off both ends, 
Um, with those tapered shafts, you probably couldn't do that for the for the reason that Steve hinted around. Um, there might be a flaw in that one test I was doing with diameter. Um, do you guys run into anything like that, or do you always? You know, I mean, how do you get around that if you are cutting um, off of both ends, or since it's an aluminum shaft, you don't have to do that. Uh, you you could cut both ends of that. I mean, it, it's whatever. There, there's some guys who, when they build that arrow, they only cut from the rear. There's some guys who only cut from the front. Some who cut from both ends. Uh, don't cut from the middle. That doesn't work. But uh, uh, yeah, you could you could do it either way with that arrow. That that arrow, you know, for me is a, it's an interesting arrow. It's cool construction, and, and it was a manufacturing challenge for us as much as anything. But I think it's a it's an ideal arrow for like a whitetail setup or something like that. Mm. It's not something I've ever mess with just because it's um one i i i'm fairly tall i require a bit stiffer arrow so mm-hmm. I, I don't have one stiff enough that'll work for me and two at the spine it is it's a little heavier than i'd like for a western hunting situation that makes sense and and for me i i've done a lot of studies like I'll, I'll, how much how big into the ashby stuff have you guys dug i mean i've i know about it enough but after about four pages in, my eyes glaze over and I feel like I'm in college again. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I just, I, I was curious because um, the tapered stuff might kind of fall in line with some of what Ashby's agree, agreeing with as far as having a larger diameter head or um, component system to the arrow would increase penetration for the rest of the shaft to go through, you know, causing less friction and stuff. And, and I didn't yeah. know, I didn't know if you guys were, um, taking that kind of mindset or if it was just a tapered shaft to meet, you know, maybe a consumer demand or something like that. Um, I, I think the be- the benefits of the taper 64 arrow, um, I like the really thick wall in the front mm-hmm. that it gives you because it's bigger diameter in the front. You almost have a built in footer because you you've reinforced the front of that arrow with a lot thicker wall it's a good point the the other thing you get with that is that you know the built-in front of center of course you don't have you know it's it's got inherent foc just because of what it is and then you also get the you know the benefit of the small diameter in the wind so it's it's a way of making it higher tech i guess as it were than than a parallel shaft okay right yeah, I mean, it's there's not in terms of like, will you notice a difference in penetration and all this with small diameter? And, and I think the the broadhead design has far more to do with that than the diameter of the arrow does. You mm. know, the, the blade angles, the length of the ferrule, the, all that stuff, you know, matters way more, I believe, than the diameter of the shaft. Well, has Easton because, um, performed? Sorry for cutting you off. Um, has Easton performed? tests on say like a four millimeter versus like a standard size shaft uh, in relation to penetration or have they done any penetration tests you know with foc yeah. and stuff like that uh with well diameter we've done penetration tests on diameter alone right like i mean you going to a small diameter definitely improves penetration mm-hmm. you know you're you're concentrating all of that energy into a into a smaller point so yeah i mean definitely it does yeah i, I just um i've heard up to 300 percent on a micro shaft versus a standard you know size shaft and i i didn't know if you guys had any like actual numbers or anything on there but um and it's, then, i don't think 300 percent's the number i mean i don't know what it is off the top of my head but it's that seems it's on high. the order of, <laughs> it, it's on the order of probably 20 to 30 percent better 
Yeah, see, on the test that I've done, on the test that I've done, I'm I'm seeing about twenty to thirty percent better. So hmm. if you're let's say you're getting twenty inches of penetration into a medium, that's going that you might get twenty six inches on a four millimeter and twenty inches on a six point five. Yeah, hypothetically, right? Yeah. I, I'm just pulling this out of my out of the air, but from stuff I've done, it's on the order of twenty to thirty percent better, not three hundred percent better. Yeah, I've I've never I've never been able to to quantify a percentage or anything. That's just stuff I've now, thrown out there. That's with a field point on the end of it. You throw a broadhead on there, it all change. The broadhead is way more. It dictates how it penetrates versus the arrow more than the arrow does. I mean, right. it's it's putting a big cut mechanical on there versus you know a a, a Valkyrie type long slender broadhead is is night and day difference in terms of penetration. Oh, absolutely. But they're, they're, they're doing different things, right? Penetration isn't the goal killing the thing is. Hmm. So, I mean, if, if the goal is to penetrate and some animals and situations dictate, you want better penetration, then obviously you should bias your setup to better penetration. But if your goal is to open something up, you I mean, you mentioned on the start of the call, we were talking about bears, you know, mm -hmm. bears aren't, bears aren't that tough, but they don't bleed very well. So if, if, Knowing that, me personally, I'm going to want to favor a, a setup that's going to open them up and encourage, you know, good blood trail. Um, if I'm hunting an, a big moose or an African game, I'm going to want to, you know, bias my setup to penetration. And, and so the situation will dictate, you know, how I want to build that arrow. But, but I will always use a small diameter arrow, me personally, if I can afford it. And because it's no matter what broadhead you put on, a small diameter arrow with any given broadhead is going to out penetrate um, a larger diameter arrow yeah and perform and, better in the wind yeah absolutely yeah and and i know i've yeah i'm on the total same page as you guys and and i just wish there was a one size fits all for hunting where you could go out and do everything for everything but um you know in reality a cape buffalo is a hell of, hell of a lot different than a than a turkey <laughs> you know i'm not gonna me personally i wouldn't use a, a mechanical on a cape buffalo i just i wouldn't do it right um, yeah, exactly. I, you know, but a turkey, hell yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I would ever not shoot an, a turkey with a mechanical. That's my time for testing and, <laughs> and, and there just having fun, you know, but, um, so with, uh, with actual types of carbon, I kind of want to bring you guys back into the manufacturing cause there's different, uh, and, and, and I know we're getting probably close on time. How are we doing on time for you guys? How much time you got left? Um, probably 10, 15 minutes, but whatever. I mean, okay. You know, well, I'll, I'm going to try and wrap this thing up. My work phone's been uh, blaring, um, so I need to get back to my work job, my day job. But um, so with um, different types of carbon in, in manufacturing processes, some manufacturers talk about dual spine, spine aligned, weaved. Um, a lot of it I don't buy, but uh, what it would be the difference between a weaved carbon and, an, and a non-weaved carbon on the market? How can guys tell what's what's kind of a without, you know, I know I won't put you in a position to shit talk another manufacturer, but, um, how to, how to get away from the gimmicky, um, salesy stuff. So basically to over, I mean, to try to simplify it for you, 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 when you design a carbon arrow, you, you need to have fibers running lengthwise down the shaft to give it stiffness. That's what gives it its spine. And then you have radial fibers that go around the arrow 360 degrees around that's what gives it its strength hmm. the crush strength of the arrow 
So you just have, it's a balancing act when you engineer it. You want to have enough lengthwise fibers to give it um, stiffness, but you need to have enough radial fibers to give it strength. Um, anytime you put a weave in turn, like when I say a weave, some of the, we Easton, for example, we don't use um, woven carbon on any of our stuff. Mm-hmm because it doesn't really help it. It doesn't do anything. So decoration. It's, it's purely an aesthetic exercise. So it's not bad to use it. It's just, it's super expensive raw material. And the companies that use it, they're doing it because they want it to look pretty. Right. Um, it doesn't functionally do anything though. Okay. <laughs> so um, the, the, the one time we actually do any sort of aesthetic on our arrow, we... I'll tell you, we do it. It's on our new 6.5 matrix shaft. Mm-hmm. And that arrow, if you look at it, it has a, a very unique weave on the outside that we purposefully put there to try to show people what I described in the beginning of our phone call. Remember when I was talking about our arrows are made with one mandrel? Yeah. And you get ultimate consistency. Our axis arrows have been made that way since the beginning of time. But because they don't, they look the same as other carbon, it's hard for people to, to see that they're different. And the way, if you look at our new 6.5 matrix arrow, you'll actually see that that weave runs all the way around the arrow and there's no seam on it. You'll see that fiber run, run perfectly 360 degrees around the shaft the whole way. It never stops. And so, and so, um, that weave was done. It's, it's, this it's aesthetic. It doesn't make the arrow perform better, but we intentionally put it there because we want people to see that our arrows are different. They're made differently and they're better because of it. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, um, the weave doesn't do anything. It just makes it look a certain way. Aesthetically pleasing. Yes. <clears throat> and hey, let's be real. I mean, we, a lot of times it's, it's a beauty contest at the store. You know, you're, you're looking at a whole wall of stuff and you're trying to make a decision on what to buy. And sometimes when all things are, you, you're stuck in the middle and you, you don't know which way to go. I, being a product guy, I, I will, aesthetics are important. So I'm not going to rag on a company for using a cool looking aesthetic on an arrow. I think it's a good touch if you, you know, if you can afford to put it on there and, and that's where you want to put your, your money, your cost of the product into the, into the aesthetic. That's a business choice you make. And, and I think in a, there's a time and a place for that. I, I can agree to a point. I mean, the, I've, I've got bones to pick with this manufacturer that I'm talking about here because I think some of their marketing is is misleading, but uh, it, it absolutely is misleading. But like, for example, your guys' FMJ, the, the FMJ look, you know, that's, that's you look at that arrow, you know, that's an Easton FMJ, you know, like your guys' RX-7s look badass. I think those are probably one of your coolest looking arrows. Um but, and, and I get the, it's, you know, I bought the autumn oranges because they were orange, you know? So I, I'm one of those guys that has, is bought for the aesthetics, but, um, I, I do think there, there's, um, other manufacturers out there that, that definitely play to the, um, I, I don't know, less, I don't want to sound like a douche, but the less intimate arrow or less knowledgeable yeah. crowd. Well, I, I'm not going to rat. I mean, again, they, the reason they do it is because they don't know how to do anything else. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a knock on them. It's that everyone in the world would love to be able to make an FMJ. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world would love to be able to make an ACC, but that's pretty dang hard to do. Mm. 
And so if you're, if you're, if you don't know how to do that and you're a product manager and I work for brand XYZ and I've got to figure out a way to make my arrow different, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be stopping. I, I'm going to do anything I can to try to differentiate my product. I mean, it, when, when you look at every other competitor, not Easton, I mean, you're making your arrows the same way. A lot of them are making them in the same factories. Right. You know, I, I mean, what they're, the only difference is the label on the box. You know, I mean, what, what do you do to differentiate your product? And I think you, that's where you're buying expensive carbon fiber weaves to put on the outside to try to make it look different and to tell a different story. I mean, it's, I, I commend them for trying, you know, it's a good, it's, I would probably do the same if I were in their shoes, you know, but the reason we don't do it is because we have the ability to, to make things differently that make a bigger, that make a real tangible difference, um, in performance. That's what ACC is not marketing hype. It's, it's crazy expensive to do, but it it works. FMJ, same thing. It's not marketing hype. It works. And the same thing for our, um, our made in USA AccuCarbon process. It works. I mean, that's not hype and, and it's cool to be able to have, you know, a story like that, that, you can stand behind that that isn't just hype well i can speak to volumes of the acc acc is i think that's probably been one of the most tried and true um even among hunters you know i know guys that if they find them online they snatch them up um granted i'm pretty sure you can still buy them new but um that you know that that's been a really popular arrow i mean among the groups that i roll with you know acc accs have been you know, that's the, it's just a good conversation. Anytime you bring up that arrow and I've, I've had them, I shot them. Um, and they're super small arrow. I mean, I, I can see why guys would use them for hunting. So, yeah, but and that's why I like the pro comp. I mean, I, I love the pro comp as a hunting arrow. Well, the pro comp, um, I saw one of the bone bow Mars killed something with those the other day. And I, and after that, I was like, I need to, I need to get my hands on those. Cause it looked like a really nice arrow. Um, I, I haven't shot the aluminum jacketed or aluminum core arrows in a long time and since the autumn oranges and, um, I just kind of wanted to get my feet wet with them again, but, and, and, and to kind of bring the point home and maybe finish this thing off is, is talking about other competitors and stuff out there. I've, my audience is probably tired of hearing me say this, but the shittier your product is, the better your marketing has to be. And, and I think that rings true all the freaking time that. And, and I see it with, with, um, you know, another industry that you guys are familiar with. I see it all the time with the mechanical industry, mechanical broadhead industry. You see some amazing uh-huh. marketing. It's like, man, these guys are really good. But then the product, you test it and it's like, it's a turd. So I, I, uh, I, that's just coming from somebody that appreciates a good product. I've used your guys stuff for a long time and, and rapid wrapping this thing up here. Is there anything that you guys wanted to close with or anything that you guys wanted to drive home before we wrap this thing up? You know, the, the one thing I'll just say is, again, I mean, just our arrows are made here in the States, um, you know, and as things are getting into weird times in the world right now, yeah, I think, you know, made in America is, a, is something that I think as we get through this current economic, you know, crisis that we're all in, I think we're going to see a rallying around made in America stuff to kind of to rebuild our country again. Yeah. And, and so... You know, I, I, that's the thing I want to just hammer home is that Easton's been made in the USA since the beginning of Easton, and we have no plans to change that. Yeah, if you really if you really think about it, what a lot of other companies do 
you know, they've got 20 guys in a warehouse and uh, Easton's got 300 people in a factory. And we're, we're proud of that. Um, we're very thankful to work for Easton and work for, you know, Greg Easton and, and the Easton family. And um, because they are a difference maker here in Salt Lake and with uh, the other companies, uh, you know, Hoyt and Delta McKenzie. So that, that's uh, something to be said about that. Clint and I could go start another aero company and <laughs> you know be, be another couple guys with a warehouse and just be basically a shipping entity but um mm. it, it's very cool to be on the manufacturing side of it too so i i uh in terms of archery the one thing i'll say is if we all throw back about 20 years you know a lot of guys were killing a lot of stuff with like 24 13 aluminum shafts and things like that so everything has gone to micro diameter this and all this technology and this and that. And, uh, again, you don't have to, we, we all like to get into the weeds and we all like to in our head, think it makes a big difference. And when you do start adding up all these technology changes and smaller diameter arrows and better carbons and this and that, yes, it does. It does make a difference, but, um, the the thing that'll make a, a lot more difference is, is learning good shot execution with your release. If you can, execute a good shot without a serious anticipation issue or target panic mm. you're going to get a lot better at archery and about any arrow put in the in the boiler maker is going to do the job so yeah. you know in the end we're trying to shoot something into a piece of meat and fur um if you put it in the right spot of the meat and fur with a decent broadhead you're probably going to come out successful i really love that perspective that's actually how uh Greg Poole and I ended the last podcast is like, you know, we could go over all this stuff and tuning and, and gear and gear and gear, but shot execution. And then <laughs> we got into a soapbox there at the end of the podcast. And to hear you say that, uh, I was just smiling. I mean, that to me, I, I, I've been preaching to my audience cause I've been such a gear guy in, in stuff like that in the last couple of years is woodsmanship and shot execution that's what we really that that would move the needle for more people is is woodsmanship skills and shot execution because you from a from your perspective i'm sure you see you go to the range maybe i don't know if you have a local range that maybe people don't know who you are and then you just see nine out of ten people maybe more than that just punching the shit out of their trigger and not not executing a good <laughs> shot and then thinking yeah i don't know it's just it's just a common commonly accepted thing and um or just, or just shooting with target panic in general. It's just a commonly accepted thing. And it's just, man, that needs to change. Yeah. It, it's, uh, again, with what I do in target archery, I, and working in the industry, you know, we love the gear guy, gear guy drives the industry. Um, but, but at the same time, if you don't have the fundamentals dialed and they're not hard to dial, it just takes a mental commitment and maybe a little bit of coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Most guys don't have the patience to go blank bail a little bit at two yards and, and learn how to execute their release properly. They want a shortcut from here to 80 yards. And, you know, oh, I'm going to, when I swing by the middle, I'm going to punch it and hope. And, <laughs> um, it, it's just, yeah, I see it everywhere. And, uh, yep. you know, rather than, and it, no one would even fathom spending like, like spending a hundred bucks on an archery lesson, people are like, Oh hell no. But they'll go spend a hundred bucks on the, the next whiz bang. That's going to help them, you know, shoot tighter groups or shoot five feet per second faster. So, <laughs> right. And <laughs> I have made, I've had years where 
you know, I mean, to put it to put it this way, I've had years where I doubled my income because I was good at shooting a bow. Hmm. So I still had a day job because I'm not about to give that up. But if you can, uh, if you can go and learn to shoot your bow the right way and commit to it, you know, it, it'll, it'll make you a, a much better archer very fast. And I started off with very bad target panic too. So yep, I was here. the puncher and I thought, Oh, I'll get a thumb release. That'll help. No, that makes it a lot worse. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I I'd love to get you maybe back on here sometime. See, if we can talk about um, mechanics and form, and, and maybe a little bit more on the bow tuning again. And and uh, Clint, you're always welcome back on as well, man. I love picking your your brain for an arrow guy. And and um, thank you both so much for even coming on to the show. It's yeah. been it's been a real honor being able to talk to both of you. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks. So, all right, guys. Well, I'll let you get going. I need I need to get some stuff here uh, going as well. Not, it's probably hey, what, five o'clock. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, sure. I wanted to tell you, we've got all the sizes of Pro Comp in stock. But what you're probably done is, uh, did you buy the Pro Comp hunting configuration? I didn't. Um, I'm I'm on your your Super Seeker Easton site. Yeah. And like everything out of there is on stock that I want. It just says out of stock. The uh, only ones that are in stock are the spines that, you know, maybe 5% of your market actually shoots. So everything I've got in Pro Comp we have available. It should be showing up. I'll, I'll ask my guys to look at that. But yeah, I'm looking at the four millimeter AC Pro Comps, and I'll click on it one more time here. But um, it is. Are you seeing? Yeah, but is it the hunt the AC Pro Comp Hunter? Uh, or Pro Comp. These are the Pro Comp lightweight built, um, and then the hunting configuration includes an aluminum half out thirty five grain four millimeter four millimeter deep six knock. So these these should be the. They say they don't say hunter on them, but they say they come in hunting sizes, and so yeah. So the 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 only we're not shipping any of the hunting configurations right now, but they they're the exact same arrow as the target one. So what I was going to say is just mm. make sure you're looking at the target one on the website, and just the only difference is the hunting one comes with a knock and an insert. The target one is just bare shaft, and then you got to buy your half out and then knock separately. It looks like the pro comps on here have bushings on them too. Um, on on the website. No. No, they're just, that's probably a picture of one with a pin in it. Mm, okay. Unless it's just a wrong picture. I, I don't know. I'm not looking at it. I'll, I'll oh. get with our web guys and make <laughs> sure they look at that. But, but we should have them. So uh, what they, they'll probably need to fix some stuff on the web and then you'll see them available pretty shortly. Uh, I'll keep checking, man, because that's one of the arrows on my list right now. Right now I'm shooting the four millimeter objection, uh, objection, the injections with um, different component systems on, on them. And I'm, absolutely loving them and and um but yeah the uh, the pro comps or, or the hunting ones are the ones on my list as well yeah the pro comp hunters we're gonna be we're redesigning the aluminum half out and so until we figure out what we're doing on that we're not going to ship any of them with that insert so okay we'll just we're gonna if you need them just buy the target ones for now what's the id on those do you know for a three four one six six one six six oh, it's a one it's, they're all one six six, one six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that'll work perfectly because the ones I'm using right now, um, have an idea of one, six, five for the components. So I, I can make that, I can make those work, I think. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I will try the, I will actually buy those then. So if I can find the, find the ones that you're talking about in stock, I'll get those. Okay. Get the deep six knocks with them. Oh yeah. The deep six knocks. Yeah. Yeah. The sure. deep six knocks are those, I've heard those are better than the G knocks. They're, they're ones a longer throat and for like a larger size or serving. Um, is that correct? Um, Throw is pretty similar, but your your deep six knock is a much shorter body, so it's just not going to flex as much out of a high poundage compound or mm -hmm. with a heavy arrow weight. So yeah, you want 
the the G knock was originally designed for recurves, you know. Okay. So it it works, but in today's setup, you want you want a deep six knock. Yeah, I've I've noticed that I shoot. I um I've shot both, and I shoot better with the deep six knocks personally. Um, and I I mean the guy of my level, um, which like I know I've said this a few times, isn't near on your level, but I can notice a difference. So, um. At least maybe it's mentally, but I, I think I notice a difference with the deep six knocks for accuracy. Probably. So, all right, guys. Well, hey, I appreciate both your time, and, and um, I w- I'd love to get you guys back on here sometime, especially uh, Steve for your tuning and, and stuff like that. I love hey, picking. Garrett, I'd like yeah. I'd like to do a, a, a severed podcast with you too. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'd yeah. love to talk broadheads and stuff. That's that's yeah. Let's uh, after we get off here, I'll send you an email. We can or now that I got your number, we can text and uh, set up a time for you. Awesome, man. Thanks. All right, guys. You have a great day. You too. See ya. All right, everybody. That's this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Steve and Clint, for coming on to the show. You guys are awesome. Offered a lot of really good insight and perspective, and I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to come on. So outside of that, if you have a chance, leave a review. Five stars is the highest. If you leave a comment, it will guarantee that you're entered for future giveaways where I take that in consideration. So, uh think ahead if you want to support the podcast be sure to leave a comment along with it so i can see who left it and you might as well try and win something out of a out of a review uh if you don't want to do that and you want to support the podcast in a different way you can become a patreon member at patreon.com forward slash on point podcast any amount really helps or you could also go to the webpage www.onpointpodcast.com give me your email which i will eventually use so outside of that appreciate it and i will see you on the next one bye